Chapter Twenty Two of Murder at Bridge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie Gibbony. Murder at Bridge by Anne Austin. Chapter Twenty Two. The Miles home, still known in Hamilton as the Hackett Place, since it had been built more than thirty years before by Flora's father, old Silas Hackett, dead these seven years, dominated one of the most beautiful of the wooded hills which encircled Mirror Lake in the Brentwood section. Of modified Tudor architecture, its deep red mellowed bricks had achieved in three decades almost the same aged dignity and impressiveness as characterized the three-century-old mansion in England which Silas Hackett's architect had used as an inspiration. The big house faced the lake, a long series of landscape terraces leading down to the water's edge, but the driveway wound from the state road up a side of the hill to the main entrance at the rear of the house. Once before, on Sunday, the day after Nita Selim's murder, when he had come to interview Lydia Carr and had secured the alibi which had eliminated Dexter Sprague as a suspect, Dundee had driven his car up this hill, between the tall yew hedges. But then he had taken the fork which led to the hooded driveway over the kitchen, had descended the kitchen stairs with Lydia to the servant's sitting-room in the basement. Now he continued along the main driveway to the more impressive entrance, whose flanking slim turrets frowned down upon a line of police cars and motorcycles. His approach must have been expected and observed, for it was the master of the house who opened the great iron-studded doors and invited the detective into the broad main hall, at the end of which, down three steps, lay the immense living room. The detective's first glance took in stately armchairs of the Cromwell period, thick, mellow-toned rugs, and, in the living room beyond, splendid examples of Jacobian furniture. A horrible thing to happen in a man's home, Dundee, Miles was saying, his plump rosy face blighted with horror. I can't realize yet that we actually slept as usual, with a corpse lying down here all night, and I have only myself to blame. "'What do you mean?' Dundee asked. "'Why, that the—the the body wasn't discovered sooner,' Miles explained. "'If it had occurred to me that Whitson hadn't closed the trophy-room windows, I should have gone in to close and lock them when I made the rounds of living-room, dining-room, and library, after our guests were gone last night.' A pale-faced, bald-headed butler had materialized while his master was speaking. "'Beg pardon, sir, but I did not close the trophy-room windows because I thought you might be using the room again. You see, sir,' and Whitson turned to Dundee, "'Mr. Miles and Mr. Dunlap played ping-pong in the trophy-room after dinner until the other guests began to arrive. And if I did not want them to find the room stuffy, it was a warm night, if any of the guests—I see,' Dundee interrupted. "'Who, to your knowledge, was the last person to enter the trophy-room last night, Mr. Miles?' "'I was, except Sprague, of course, and I had no idea he'd gone there. Drake wanted to play anagrams, and before the bridge game started I went to the trophy-room to get the box,' Miles explained. "'I turned off the light when I left, and there was no light burning in there this morning when Celia, the parlour-maid, went there to put the anagram-box back in the cabinet and found the body.' "'Flora, Mrs. Miles,' 
had brought the anagrams in from the porch and left them on a table in the living room as our guests were getting ready to leave. There was nothing else to bring in in case of rain. The bridge tables are of iron, covered with oilcloth, and fitted with oilcloth bags for the cards, score pads, and pencils. Yes, I know, Dundee interrupted. Miss Crane has already told me all about that, and a good many details of the party itself. By the way, where is Mrs. Miles now? In bed. The doctor is with her. She is prostrated from the shock. Where is this room you call the trophy room? Dundee asked. No, don't bother to come with me. Just point it out. It's on this floor, I understand. Miles pointed past the great circular staircase that wound upward from the main hall. You can't see the door from here, but it's behind the staircase. Celia found the door closed this morning, and no light on, as I said. Dundee cut him short by marching toward the door, which was again closed. He entered so noiselessly that Captain Strawn, Dr. Price, and the fingerprint expert, Carraway, did not hear him. For a moment he stood just inside the door and let his eyes wander about the room, which Penny Crane had already described. It was not a large room, twelve by fourteen feet possibly, but it looked even smaller, crowded as it was with the long ping-pong table, bags of golf clubs, fishing tackle, tennis rackets, skis, and sleds. There were two windows in the north wall of the room, looking out upon the yew-hedged driveway, and between them stood a cabinet of numerous big and little drawers. Not until he had taken in the general aspect of the room did Dundee look at the thing over which Captain Strawn and the coroner were bending, the body of Dexter Sprague. The alien from New York had fallen about four feet from the window nearer the east wall of the trophy room. He lay on his side, his left cheek against the floor, the fingers of his left hand still clutching the powder-burned bosom of his soft shirt, now stiffed with dried blood, a pool of which had formed and then half congealed upon the rug. The right hand, the fingers curled but not touching each other, lay palm upward on the floor, at the end of the rigid outstretched arm. The one visible eye was half open, but on the sallow, thin face, which had been strikingly handsome in an obvious sort of way, was a peace and dignity which Dundee had never seen upon Sprague's face when the man was alive. The left leg was drawn upward, so that the knee almost touched the bullet-pierced stomach. "'How long has he been dead, doctor?' Dundee asked quietly. "'Hello, boy,' Dr. Price greeted him placidly. "'Always the same question. "'I've been here only a few minutes, "'and I've already told Strawn "'that I shall probably be unable to fix the hour of death "'with any degree of accuracy.' "'Took your time, didn't you, Bonnie?' "'Captain Strawn greeted his former subordinate "'on the homicide squad. "'Doc says he's been dead between ten and twelve hours. "'Since it's nearly ten now, "'that means Sprague was killed sometime "'between nine and eleven o'clock last night.' "'Better say between nine o'clock and midnight last night,' Dr. Price suggested. "'He may have lived an hour or more, unconscious, of course, "'for the indications are that he did not die instantly, "'but staggered a few steps, clutching at the wound. "'But of course I shall have to perform an autopsy first. "'Dundee crossed the room, stepping over the dead man's stick, "'a swank affair of dark, polished wood, "'with a heavy knob of carved onyx.' which lay about a foot beyond the reach of the curled fingers of the stiff right hand. "'Sprague's hat?' he asked, pointing to a brightly banded straw which lay upon the top of the cabinet. "'Yes,' Strawn answered. "'And did you notice the window screen?' He pointed to the window in front of which the body lay. 
The sash of leaded panes was raised as high as it would go, and beneath it was a screen of the roller curtain type, raised about six inches from the window sill. A pair of curved, nickel-plated catches in the center of the inch-wide metal band on the bottom of the copper net curtain showed how the screen was raised or lowered. Dundee nodded, frowning, and Strawn began eagerly. "'You'll have to admit I was right now, boy. You've sneered at my gunman theory and tried to pin Nita's murder on one of Hamilton's finest bunch of people, but you'll have to admit now that every detail of this setup bears me out.' "'Yes? Sure.' This is the way I figure it out. Sprague has good reason to be afraid he's next on the program. He's nervous. He hops a taxi at his hotel and comes here. Can't stick to his room any longer. Wants a little human companionship. This crowd here, and I have Miles' word for it, ain't any too glad to see him, and shows it. He phones for a taxi to go back to his hotel. About 9.15 that was, Miles says, but decides to walk down the hill to meet it. Don't want to go back out on the porch and lie about having had a good time when he hasn't. Well, he opens the front door, or what would be the front door if this was any ordinary house, but before he steps out he sees or hears something, probably a rustling in the hedge across the driveway, or maybe he even sees a face in the light from the lanterns on each side of the door. He feels sure Nita's murderer has trailed him and is lying in wait for him. In a panic, he darts into this room, and don't turn on the light for fear he'll be seen from the windows. But he can see well enough to make out how the screens work, and he was familiar with the house anyway. I'll bet you anything you like Sprague stayed in this room for an hour or two, till he thought the coast was clear, then eased up this screen, intending to climb out of the window and drop to the ground. Not much of a drop at that. You can see that the tall hedge on this side of the driveway comes pretty near up to these windows. Well, I figure he laid his hat on this cabinet, intending to reach in for it when he was outside, but that he had already made some little noise which the gunman was listening for, and that when he got the screen up this high, the gunman, crouching under the window, let go with the same gun and silencer that he used to bump off Nita. I've got Miles' word for it that neither he nor anybody else heard a shot. Of course, nobody knew Sprague was in here, and since his hat and stick was both missing from the hall closet. They took it for granted he'd beat it. Any objections to that theory, boy? Just a few. One in particular, Dundee said. But I grant it's a good one, provided Dr. Price's autopsy bears you out as to the course of the bullet, and that Carraway finds Sprague's fingerprints on that contrivance for raising the screen. Even then... But Dundee was not allowed to finish his sentence, for Strawn was summoned to the telephone by Whitson. When he returned, there was a slightly bewildered look on his heavy old face. "'That's funny. Collins, the lad I sent to check up on the taxi companies, says he's located the driver that answered Sprague's call last night. The driver says he was called about 9.15, told to come immediately and to wait for Sprague at the foot of the hill on the main road. He says he waited there until half-past ten, then went on back to town. Soren a boiled owl.' It doesn't look exactly as if Sprague were afraid of anyone outside of this house last night, does it? Dundee asked. By the way, I suppose you've sent for everyone who was here? Sure. But again, Captain Strawn looked uncomfortable. But we haven't been able to locate the Beale girl and Clive Hammond. End of chapter 22